1: Hi, everybody. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books Network. This is Pamela Fuentes, editor of New Books Network en Espanol. Today, we'll be talking to Carlos Alberto Sanchez about A Sense of Brutality Philosophy After Narcoculture. This book was published in 2020 by Amherst College Press. Carlos, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: It is great to have you. And just to let the audience know, we have a version in Spanish or an interview in Spanish about this book. So if you want to listen to this one and then the one in Spanish, please do it. Um, Let's begin the interview with a brief introduction. Please tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Well, my name is Carlos Alberto Sanchez. I am a professor of philosophy at San Jose State University, where I have been uh, teaching philosophy since 2006, um, I write mostly about Mexican thought and culture, uh, you know, in the area of philosophy, so the history of Mexican philosophy, um, and uh, and this book is is I consider it part of that part of that interest. Uh, so yeah, so that's just a little bit about me.
1: Great, and let's start literally by the beginning. In the first paragraph, we we'll read that this book deals with a phenomenon that might seem to fall outside the scope of philosophy, considering philosophy in its traditional sense. Tell us how you came to write this book and how narco-culture can be studied from a philosophical perspective.
0: Yeah, well, um, the, the reason why I wanted to write this book was because I felt uh, that people, uh, First of all, uh, as, as a Mexican-American, uh, I, f- I feel like the, the need to uh, put philosophy into the practice of understanding my community um, and all the different phenomena that kind of uh, make it up uh, and that travel and traffic within it. Uh, and one of the things that, that always uh, impacted me was the influence of narcoculture on the Mexican community in the United States. Um, and, uh, and the way that it was portrayed in the media, the way that it's portrayed, um, in the, in, in all the different, uh, areas of life in our community. Uh, and, um, and I, I, I was, I was surprised to see that, uh, everybody considered it to be just that, a form of maybe a form of entertainment, uh, maybe, uh, some sort of, uh, uh, passing, uh, cultural phenomenon that was just um, isolated to a particular time and place. Uh, and, uh, and I thought that that was, uh, the wrong way to think about narco culture. Um, and I started looking into it. And of course, the first thing that you notice is the hundreds of thousands of people that have died as a result, um, of, of, of the, of the rise of, of narco trafficking in the last, you know, 40 years. Uh, so, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, began to think about what could we say philosophically about, about that, um, that phenomenon. And, um, and so one of the things that motivated me to write the book was this, uh, the, the, the many different treatments of other violent situations, other violent cultures, other violent, uh, other moments of violence and, uh, death that have occurred in the 20th century and all over the world and the way that philosophers have reacted to that, right? So I'm talking, of course, about like the Holocaust, I'm talking about um, 9-11, I'm talking about big uh, moments of death and destruction that have happened in the last century and how philosophers have reacted to that. Um, And here we are with uh, over 200,000 people dead and nobody's talking about it philosophically, right? And, uh, and I, th- I thought that was that, that, that somebody should write about that. And so I decided that it would have to be me. Uh, and so because of my interest with, uh, in, in Mexican philosophy and the history of philosophy in Mexico uh, and my own cultural embeddedness, I decided that uh, this was going to be a philosophical project that I needed to take on.
1: And I'm glad you did. Um, when talking about narcoculture, people often tend to think about Latin America, particularly Mexico or Colombia. However, you mentioned that this topic should also be of interest of U.S. philosophers. Please tell us why.
0: Uh, yes, because um, Mexico is just down the street, <laughs> literally, right, from the United States. So um, the idea that the, that there was this, uh, I call it a a cultural modality, right? There, that there was this cultural modality, this phenomenon that was happening right down the street, uh, to me, seems like uh, something that philosophies or philosophers interested in morality and politics and um, in ex- in existence should pay attention to. Um, because it's just, Right there, it's something that is affecting people right now, uh, and it's something that's very close at hand for us. And so, uh, I, I, I always I find it odd that uh, philosophers like to focus on on ethical and political issues that have passed that that are hundreds of years old, uh, decades old, and or not even part of our current situation or circumstance. Um, and so I wanted to, to, to make sure that we discussed this phenomenon that I thought was morally, politically, and existentially important uh, for us.
1: And I hope several philosophers take your invitation because definitely it's a topic that deserves more and more attention from different disciplines. And of course, philosophy should be one that w- could help us understand what is happening, and talking about these concepts that help us understand, let's talk about the use of brutality as a concept, which is at the core of your book. I want to start, like you did, focusing on an important remark you made before going more in-depth of the analysis. You state that a culture of brutality is not a culture of brutes you are very clear letting the readers know that you're not depicting those sectors of the Mexican communities which deal with with narco culture as savages or uncivilized. What are the dangers of this characterization?
0: Uh, Well, there's an immediate danger of talking about uh, the culture of brutality in the context of talking about Mexico is that uh, people would immediately think that the reason, why, the reason why, I'm, why I'm calling it that is because it is Mexico. Uh, and then there's this uh, m- implicit bias about Mexican culture itself, that perhaps it is not as advanced or civilized as other countries. And therefore, uh, this kind of behavior or these kinds of cultural uh, ways of being are just normal for that particular culture. Um, that's the immediate danger that to think that uh, what I'm talking about is uh, a culture that is primitive mm-hmm. or uncivilized, right? But uh, I try to make it clear that that is not at all what I'm talking about. Uh, brutality and the cultural brutality that I'm depicting in the book uh, is one that is a result or a direct result of civilization, of civilized cultures, of uh, the neoliberal economic uh, world systems. It is uh, directly related to uh, a, an advanced culture, advanced civilizations. Uh, and so my, my, my claim uh, in several parts of the book is that narco-culture, narco-trafficking, and the violence that it requires need or necessitate or require uh, advanced uh, civilized economic systems uh, it, th- these kinds of things would not happen and if, if those were not in place already. so uh, so that's the danger to think that that I'm that I'm equating those two things and again I'm not. I think that brutality is such an important concept that it could sneak up on us and it could infect and take over uh, the, the, any any society in any part of the world at any time.
1: And it might be hard to believe how common it is that people think that uh, narco-culture flourished in Mexico or in Latin America because uh, we don't know how to behave. And I'm literally quoting a conversation I overheard in New York of people talking about uh, drug trafficking. Somebody said, oh... This is never going to end because, you know, Mexicans, they just don't know how to behave. So it wasn't neoliberalism. There wasn't like politics. No, it was behavior. So that's what I thought it was so important to to talk about this at the beginning of the interview. And talking about things that seem familiar, we all might think we know what narco culture is. It's like a concept that everybody's like, oh yeah, I know what it is. But no, after I read your book, I confirmed once again how difficult and how complicated it is to define it. You tell us, for instance, that in spite of its overt violence, narco-culture represents economic and existential opportunities for people in marginalized communities, and that it is simultaneously a culture of both creation- and destruction, help us understand what narcoculture is or how it works from the perspective of your analysis.
0: Yeah, so um, it's I, I, I like to think of it as I call it in the book. I call it a way of life, right? So um, it is a way of life. First of all, it's um, it's a culture where that has its uh, distinct ways of dressing, the distinct distinct music. It has a distinct vocabulary or jargon, and it has its routines—the kind of things that that are done in that particular culture. For instance, the narco trafficking um, and um, and the various violent uh, and uh, regimes that are attached to that. Um, but also, it is a, a a culture of creation, right? Because um, a lot of the a lot of the messaging that comes out of that culture uh, comes out through its music, right? For example. Um, and narco corridos uh, are insanely popular in the U S for example. Um, people love the narco corridos and uh, not necessarily because they're talking about uh, murder and brutality and violence, but because they're good songs, right? People like the music. Um and so I think that uh, that kind of thing—it's—it's uh, uh, it's a culture because it's creating cultural products, and um, and so and so it's not just about the narco traffickers. I mean, there's uh, I can I can walk out walk down the street here and where I live, I live in Hayward in Hayward, California, uh, and I can go down one of these streets and find people riding around in these big big trucks, um, blasting the narco corridos. Um, and then I could follow them down to the local, uh, carniceria and they'll get down from their truck and they're, you know, they're, uh, they work at Facebook or something like that, you know, they, they, uh, they're, they're Facebook employees. They're dressed in their regular color California dress or whatever. So anyways, uh, I, I think what I'm trying to get at is that, uh, narco culture is a way of life where, um, there's, uh, it, it, it's is producing a different source of cultural products. Now, uh, one of the things that, that I say in the book, uh, so, so that I think that's, that's like a, like an after effect, right? That's something uh, that, that, that narco-culture leaves in its wake. It's, it's something that we're going to, that, that we all, that all of us are uh, are receiving, right? These, these kind of cultural products. Um, but uh, one of the things that I say when, when I'm trying to define mar- narcoculture in the book, which, as you put it, it's very hard to do, um, is um, is that I'm saying that if, if you exist uh, in that culture, if you exist in that culture, it's not necessarily your choice that you exist in that culture. Uh, for example, if you go down to Culiacán or uh, Sinaloa and, and, and different parts of Sinaloa, um, uh, people are living everyday lives, doing everyday things, uh, but the, the culture is on top of them, right? It's like uh, they can't escape uh, what what this culture is about, or what it's doing in their communities, they they're just there. They're they they live within the culture, and um and they have to do certain things to survive in that culture, not necessarily illegal things, but um but at the same time, um they they have to respect uh the the rules that narco culture has set up wherever it is that they live, right? Uh, so uh so so one of the things that 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 I that I think about is uh, the the you know the one time when I when I went to Culiacan uh, I was being driven down to back to the airport uh, and obviously my driver was not a narco um, but he was telling me as we drove down there about all the things that he couldn't do mm-hmm. right all the things that he was not allowed to do uh, because if he did them you know he'd get in trouble with the narcos uh, so 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 in in that sense narco culture was already kind of dictating his own uh experiences on a day-to-day basis uh so um but 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 also uh it's it's setting it's setting rules and laws for them uh, that allow them to survive you know the the whatever economic uh system it is that that we all live in uh so so it's you know i i think i'm going around in circles here but um, narcoculture, I think, is uh, is a complex cultural way of life uh, that in, involves diff- many different things, including the violence and brutality that I talk about in the book, but also um, opportunities right, for people to exist, to live out the the difficulties of life in the world.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, and that's why I think uh, your book is, is so interesting because it helps us think one more time about the complexities of it, even though, as you mentioned, violence is a central component of narco culture. So let's talk about the second chapter titled On Violence or a Premier on Narco Culture. It opens with an Arthur Schopenhauer quote, which reads, justice is in itself powerless. What rules by nature is force. Full disclosure, I'm a big fan of epigraphs. So I, when I have the opportunity, I ask authors why they used those uh, quotes. So the question is, why did you use this Schopenhauer's quote to open your chapter and how it is related to your analysis?
0: (laughs) Yeah, good, good, good question. Uh, Yeah, I love epigraphs too. So uh, great. (laughs) That that, that one, uh, I chose it because I was talking, I wanted to talk about um how violence was uh was being used um in the culture in in culture how violence was setting up the rules uh for the culture itself um and 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 so and so one of the things that uh that the quote mentions is that uh what really sets down those rules is force right um and and so my i that that's what that's what i wanted to highlight right that in narco culture um what's going to what was going to create a just uh situation is going to be force uh power right uh and so i i think that um it's it's very clear right it's it's I mean we we can talk about that in any other situation but in that particular situation uh it's very clear that uh the threat of force, the threat of violence, is what keeps things in place, right? Yeah. Um, and and the the paradox with with uh, with narco culture is that uh, the threat of violence keeps things in place, and violence itself keeps things in place, right? So it's both. Um, and and one of the things that I talk about in the in the book too is that violence is required um, to maintain the the the, the system that nurtures and operates the culture, right? So violence is required to do these things. You need to show force. Um, there needs to be a show of force and there needs to be the threat of force. So so there's, you know, this, there's all these uh, different things going around there. And Schopenhauer was one of the first, one of the only philosophers that I saw that was being very uh, clear about that to the point that I needed to use the epigraph.
1: And when reading your book, it is clear that the word violence does not capture the acts which take place as part of narco culture. In fact, you demonstrate that some acts might be too cruel, too extreme. So you propose the concept of brutality. As part of this analysis, you gave an interesting example. And I quote, the murder of a man is already a violent act, but the execution of the rest of his family for no other reason than to punish the already murdered man is more than violence and different from violence. Can you explain why you use brutality instead of violence, terror, or cruelty?
0: Yeah, good. I mean, that's, that is at the heart of this book. And uh, what, what, I, what I noticed growing up, right, um, when I was uh, a kid, I had an uncle, my uncle Manuel, who um who uh, all of a sudden stopped working here uh, he used to live around here in california and um and he used to work in the uh in the orchards in central california and uh, all of a sudden he stopped working but he was driving around very nice cars right he had very nice cars all the time uh well um we came to find out uh, that uh, he was actually uh, trafficking, right? He, he got involved uh, with some people. He was trafficking down to Michoacán um, and up and down. He was driving up and down all the time. Um, and then uh, at one point, uh, he stopped coming. He disappeared. Uh, we didn't know where he was. Uh, my aunt uh, was going a little crazy because she wanted to know where he was. And uh, Eventually, about two weeks uh, after he went missing, we f- they found him in a in a garbage dump in Uruapan, um, naked, and his body completely mutilated. Right? Mm. Um, and uh, I was a kid, but I I remember asking my mom, um, why did they do that to Uncle Manuel? And um, and then she her answer was, well, that's how they do things. She couldn't explain it. That's how they do things. And I kept wondering, like, why do that? Like, why don't just because he was also shot in the head. Uh, And I and I thought, why why don't just shoot him in the head and leave him there? Like, what's what's that extra stuff for? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's and it wasn't that they were trying to send a message because they threw him in the garbage. Right. Mm -hmm. They wanted him to disappear after they they shot him in the head and brutalized them, so that that idea kind of stuck with me for years and so when I was writing the book i that that's the first thing that I thought about okay, what is that extra stuff for right so you you have this violent act um and then you decide to do this extra thing uh or to do this violent act in this extra violent way uh and uh and why right so so there was there's another um Uh, example that I read about uh, where these narcos were going, went into a village in Michoacan uh, and they were killing the babies. They killed a bunch of babies. And the way they would do it is uh, the way that you kill a rabbit. And I don't know if you uh, if you were ever around somebody killing a rabbit. When I was growing up, uh, my dad would grab the rabbit by the ears and hold it up and just hit it in the back of the head and the rabbit would die. Um, well, that's what they were doing to these kids, right? But instead of the ears, they were holding them by the feet. Now, why, <laughs> Why this extra stuff? Um, well, the, 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 the answer to that question is not something that I will ever find out, but, um, what that, what that shows is that there is this extra stuff, this extra violence that is completely unnecessary, um, that's that's excessive, right? It's an excessive violence that I, that, that it does, is not captured by the concepts that we have of violence. Uh, so in chapter two, when I talk, when I'm talking about all these different kinds of violence, uh, the theories of violence, all these theories of violence from Hannah Arden to, to Zizek, to all of these other people, they, they don't capture that extra stuff that excessiveness, right? Or they don't. They, they, they don't. That the, the, the concepts themselves fail, right? They break down because they don't capture that extra stuff, that ex- that excessiveness. Uh, and so that's what that that's why I decided. Well, no, violence is not going to cut it. Like the concept of violence is too is too abstract, uh, or it's too specific, um, or it's too worn out. It's weak. So, we need this other concept, and so I chose brutality because and then I defined it as, okay, so this is going to include this other stuff, this excessiveness that's not accounted for in 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 violence, that extra thing that people do that's not necessarily cruelty either, right because um uh cruelty is uh, as I say in the book, I make a distinction between brutality and cruelty, and I and I say that cruelty is a very individual thing. It belongs to people. Um, and with cruelty, you're trying to do something and or, or commit an act of a violent act and make sure that everybody knows that you did that. Right? And so it's a reflection of your own personality. Um, whereas brutality, according to the philosopher Max Shaler, Um, doesn't aim to do those things. Brutality is a violent act that at the same time dehumanizes the person so that it doesn't seem like a violent act, right? So you, you turn a person into an object, and then when you hit that person, when you stab that person, when you shoot that person, you're not hitting or stabbing or shooting a person. You're hitting, stabbing, or shooting an object, um, and that's why it's so easy to do those extra, extra things to those people or those, you know, pseudo people at that point. Uh, and so that's why I thought that brutality was a better concept because I got that concept I got that distinction from Taylor. And then I saw the phenomenon that was going on with narco culture with this excessiveness. Um, and then I applied the concept to that. Uh, so, so that's why I chose that, that that concept. And 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 I'll say one more thing to uh, uh, this this idea that brutality dehumanizes the other person in order to to justify the violence um, is not something that you find in other concepts or other phenomena like terror, right? Because the first thing somebody's going to say is, "Well, that sounds like terror," but terrorism uh depends on having you know that the other that the person that you're killing is a person. Because the only way that I'm going to terrorize you is by making you very afraid. And and the way that you're going to become afraid is if I show you that this could happen to you. Right. Um, and and so I'm I want you I want to maintain the humanity of the victim so that you can see it. Right and be filled with terror. What I'm saying in the book is that brutality doesn't do that. In fact, brutality wants to dehumanize the other person so that you don't feel anything about it, right? So when, uh, and and I had different conversations with my mom about this over the years, right? When uh, something on Univision comes on, oh, they killed 15 narcos. and my mom would say all the time, uh, pues en eso andaban, right? Mm-hmm. That's, well, you know, we, we know what they were getting. We know, we know that they were into something bad, right? So that they killed them is no big deal. That reaction points directly to the dehumanization that goes on in brutality and why that violence is accepted at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, and we could... Record another podcast just talking about the consequences of mm-hmm. that reaction, right? Like, okay, the, the, they were narcos. It, it's it's mm-hmm. it's what they had it common. It mm-hmm. it would happen anyway. But uh, let's let's keep talking about brutality because you also mentioned that brutality leaves us speechless, and I couldn't agree more. I think this is one of the parts of your book in which. I connected the most, you know, you were talking about all of these brutal acts and it's difficult to try to think about following the conversation and sometimes you read them. And yeah, brutality leaves us speechless. And you said it forces us to keep three silences, the silence of shock, the silence of indifference and the silence of renunciation. Tell us more about it, please.
0: Yeah, well, um, it's, uh, I think that, you um... It's important to think uh, of this of brutality uh, rendering us speechless because for me, at least, it, it, it shows what it does, right? It, it shows what an excessively violent act accomplishes. And what it accomplishes is, um, is that we, we run out of ways to describe it, uh, right? We, first of all, in the, in the moment of shock, you don't know what to say. Right, we say this all the time. It's an everyday thing. If if I see a, if I see something bad happen outside my house, I'll say I, I don't I don't I don't even know what to say about that. Um, and then and and then there's this there's there's this other moment where you see it often enough, right? You see the the, the violence often enough, uh, brutality often enough, that you become you you become immune to it. You become numb to it. Right? You're no longer it's not that you don't have anything to say. You don't want to say anything. Right. Because it's our, it's happened so much. Like, oh man, not again. Right. Okay. I'll just, I'll just continue living my life. I'm not going to say anything about that. Uh, and then there's that renunciation thing too, where, um, where, where you, you just believe that this is going to happen for the rest of time. Right. This is something that I cannot help, something that I cannot say anything about. It's done. Like, okay. I'm just going to, continue living my life. And that's that. Uh, so, but, but, but the most important thing I think to, to keep in mind with, with this notion that brutality render us speechless is that we are invited by brutality to not say anything. Right. Um, it's not, not necessarily to keep quiet, but it takes the words away from us. Right. And, uh, and that's part of its logic. It, in, in a brutal culture, a brutal society, whether that's narco culture or somewhere in, the, in Ohio, in the United States, where, where violence and brutality are actual facts of life, it's the, the dehumanization aspect of it uh, makes it so that we don't have anything to say about it, right? Because it's so common and it's such a way, is it's such a normal way of life that that we just don't have words to describe it. Uh and when we try to describe it, it it comes out like something that people are already familiar with. And uh and so and I think that a lot of in a lot of these cases, people are not familiar with these things. And and what words do when we try to describe something, what words do is that they make it acceptable in a certain way, right? or they, they, they take away the horror of it. They take away that brutality of it, the shock that you should feel. They take all those things away. So so I think that um, when uh, when when I say that brutality renders us speechless, um, I mean that we lack the word to talk about it. And so we just don't, right? We just don't. And, uh, and what happens with that is that it it's then continues, right? It it perpetuates itself. It continues to be the thing that it is. Society continues to go down that road. The violence continues to mount. Deaths and murder and all of that stuff continue because we're just not, we just don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, And so I, I think that that's one of the, uh, I don't have any like lessons in the book. Like I try, I don't try to give anybody any recommendations as, that, as to how to proceed um, because I consider the text to be something of a phenomenology. So I'm just trying to describe what's going on in this philosophical way. Uh, so I'm not giving any like prescriptive moral uh, advice as to how to go on. But I think that if there was one, if there was something that I could say about That it would be, if if any, if we learn anything from the book is that silence is complicit with brutality. Um, and so we shouldn't be silent. We should speak even if brutality and violence and whatever is trying to take the words out of our mouths.
1: Yeah, you are completely, completely right. Well, definitely your book made me think a lot, particularly the last chapter, which I found really complex, and I think it's a chapter one can revisit several times, and it is titled On Personhood or El Pozole, Toward the Absolute Derealization of the Other. In there, you talk about the brutality paradox. How are objectification and dehumanization related to this paradox? And probably most important for for this chapter, what is the derealization of the other?
0: Yeah, so I, I take that concept of derealization from uh, an American philosopher named Judith Butler. Uh, and Judith Butler is trying, is talking about um, uh, homosexuals uh, that are dehumanized in society uh, because they are homosexuals, uh, and then she focuses on those that have AIDS, right, um, or that or that die during the AIDS epidemic, uh, and the idea is that um, if we want to derealize a person, if we want to take away their reality, uh, what we do is that we we turn them into an idea, right? We convert the person into an idea. Um, and the way that we do that is through statistics right or or is through uh, narratives that try to capture entire groups as well as entities right so um so we can say oh well what what did your cousin die of? well he died of AIDS in the 1980s he was a homosexual right and immediately when you say that you you get rid of the reality of your cousin and he becomes just an abstract idea that was part of that narrative about gays dying from AIDS in the 1980s. Um, and so I, I get that idea that the realization and I, and I apply it to what's going on uh, in narco culture or to, to a particular practice that was happening in narco culture that I'm sure still goes on. And that's the concept of pozole, of am turning somebody into soup. Right. And, um, and the idea was that, um, uh, a a lot of uh, a practice amongst uh, narcos was to disappear other people by putting in putting them in barrels of diesel uh or acid and basically dissolving them uh to the point where nothing remained of them uh and and my my claim in the book is that not only uh did we derealize them by turning them into narcos that as my mom said. Knew what they were getting into, uh, so that's the first derealization. The second one is when we put them in this barrel, and now they their their entire humanity is completely gone. Um, so, so there's this derealization that goes on uh, in narco culture, uh, where where the person is derealized first by being grouped into 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 this into a stereotype. Uh, and then there's a second derealization that is, that, that is really a, a, an act of brutality, right? Where you completely disfigure, completely derealize, completely destroy the other person. Um, and so in, in my eyes, that entire practice really puts into question what we understand about personhood, right? What does it mean to be a person? Well, it means all these things, but look how fragile it is. Look how fragile this concept is. Because I could, the de- de- I could de- completely depersonalize you, de-realize you by categorizing you in some random way, or I could put you in this barrel of acid, and you'll completely be gone, forever, disappeared. Maybe remain a memory in your mom and your mom's mind or something. And so, and so, there's this. You know, I, I wanted to to point out that brutality has this power, uh, to create conditions for the dehumanization and the derealization of persons. Now I, I try to be optimistic or not optimistic, but I try to end up in a, in a positive note at some point in that chapter by saying, but you know, the human body, the human person is very, uh, um, hard to get rid of, right? (laughs) Like, uh, not only does the memory remain in, in somebody's mind, but, uh, you know, it's hard to get rid of, a tra- it's hard to completely erase you from the face of the planet as as happened to uh, the guy who they used to call El Pozolero, who was um, eventually caught after doing this for, to maybe a thousand people. And the way that they caught them is because the uh, the moms of some of these missing people showed up to where he was, where he was working and they found little pieces of teeth or little pieces of bone just scattered on the, on the ground. And they were able to then identify the person after that. So even though they tried really, really hard to, to realize a the person, there's this there's this hum, human uh, resilience that can transcend all those efforts to get rid of you completely from the face of the earth. And I think that's that, that was like my my uptake in that chapter.
1: Yeah, definitely, and it's uh, difficult not to think uh, also about how this complete the realization or trying to erase a person uh, don't erase them from the mind of their mothers or their loved ones, who are the ones that are going to be looking for this body that somebody tries to disappear. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's kind of taking away not only their body, but uh, these rituals mm-hmm. of grief. Um, so I, you touch upon on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about
0: yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, we were all embedded in different social, uh, we were all products of rituals and cultural forms of life. Right. We, we were all embedded in them. We're all part of ways of understanding that make us who we are and make us intelligible to other people. Um, I think that one of the, one of the most, um, impactful ways that, uh, brutality de-realizes persons is by first of all, dehumanizing them to the point that they're no longer humans, but also trying to disappear them from the face of the earth. And um, and if you disappear someone from the face of the earth, then you really can't, as you say, you can't mourn them. You can't. You can't. Uh, uh, you don't know where they are, so you can't say that they're dead. And if you say that they're dead, there's always going to be a doubt in you that maybe they're not. Uh, so so true mourning can't take place in a situation where you have no knowledge of what happened to your loved one. Uh, and so, I think that's one of the cruelest. Uh, the, the one of the cruelest things about this this particular act of posoliar somebody, right? It's 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 cruel because it's uh, it's trying to make your loved ones suffer unnecessarily, right? You're um, you're trying to to not allow them to mourn, to not allow them to to go on, right? Because you're kind of stuck uh, somewhere, not knowing anything in this limbo space. And uh, to me, that's just, I I just can't imagine it, it it would be horrifying to not know uh, what happened to somebody that I loved. Um, And so and so I think that um, once these mothers uh, find traces of their missing ones, um, that's why it allows for the closure that we talk about, right, we talk about, oh, yeah, well, now they can have closure. Well yeah it allows it because now even though it's a hair, even though it's a fingernail, right you know something you know that that person um was was murdered in that way, and now you can mourn them, now you can light the candles now you can go on with your life right so um so that i think part of the real part of the lessons here um is, is that there is a lot of resiliency amongst human communities, and especially in narco culture. Right? Because again, to go back to the beginning, um, narco culture is not just about uh, violence and brutality and narco trafficking. Right? There's people that exist in that culture that probably don't want to exist in that culture, but they still exist in that culture, that survive in that culture. Um, and they do so by, um, in, through different practices, different rituals, uh, and different ways to, to exist. Uh, and and I think that that's, um, that shows that it's it's not a subculture like like uh, some people call it it's a culture right and 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 there's different things that are going on in that culture, including uh, keeping memories alive, including uh, different rituals of mourning and worship, uh, literature and poetry uh, and that that are belong specifically to to that culture and and so and so I and, and that, that's why I wanted to, and in, in the first chapter, that's why I wanted to make that point that narcoculture is not a subculture, it's a culture, right? And uh, whether we like it or not, it's a culture that is spreading, right? Uh, I see it down the street here in Hayward. I see it everywhere that I go. Um, and so it's it's not something that's going away. I think that if anything, it's, uh, it's becoming more accepted in different places.
1: Yes, definitely. And well, I want to end this conversation talking about the book itself. Can you tell the audience where to find it? And my second related question, it is, have you thought about translating your book in Spanish?
0: Well, uh, I, I would love to translate it into Spanish, but uh, I, I don't want to do it myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what some editors... I, I will ask your editors about it, or somebody else can take this invitation, please.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, p- please, yeah. Please do that because I, I, um, I, I would, I would love it to. I think, I think that it would be something that uh, that would find interest uh, in in Mexico. I mean, I, I presented a lot of these, uh, a couple of these chapters in Culiacan in the in, in a conference on on violence, um, and so it, you know, it's it's. I think that it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people would find very interesting, especially my particular take on the whole thing, which I still claim is very philosophical. Um, and so, so, so that's, that's, that's the answer to that. I really hope that it does achieve that, um, that translated version of it now as to where to find it, um, it's free. The book is free. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's open access, so you can download it um, off the Internet. If you go to um, Amherst College Press uh, and then just look up for A Sense of Brutality, and, uh, and then it gives you the instructions as to how to download it for free. Uh, and, but if you're the kind of person like myself that likes to have a book in their hand uh, and read, you can also order it from their website, and that one is going to cost like fifteen dollars. Uh, but it was a great opportunity for me to publish in this in this format uh, because I felt like it would be it would reach the largest possible audience, and that's what I wanted. Again, because I thought that a phenomenon like this uh, needed to be highlighted uh, and discussed in a philosophical way by more people. So that's why I decided to use that press, which i I am very happy I did.
1: I also hope your book reaches a lot of people. Please, the invitation is there. The book is open access. And Carlos, I want to thank you for being on the show today, but I don't want to let you go without asking you what are you working on now? if you are having a, if you are working on other projects, please tell us,
0: yeah, so um. Like I said, my my major interest is Mexican Mexican thought, Mexican philosophy and culture, uh, and so right now I am uh, working on a book uh, that I just actually I handed in the manuscript today this morning. Hi, congratulations. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a book on um, Mexican philosophy but for a, a wider audience. Uh, so it's written in a way that you know hopefully everybody will be able to understand it's. Uh, that what makes the book uh, unique and interesting, I think, is that I spend half of the time talking about my parents, right? yeah. <laughs> which, uh, I, you know, again, it's like philosophy shouldn't be doing these kinds of things or philosophers shouldn't be or we're told that philosophers shouldn't be doing this. But I feel like the only way that I can explain philosophy is by applying it to my own life. Uh, so I have a lot of um, a lot of stories there about my grandfather and my parents and my siblings and my life as a Mexican-American in the United States. Uh, And so I just submitted that manuscript. The book is going to be called A Blooming in the Ruins. uh, and uh, And it's going to be about an easy, accessible way to understand Mexican philosophy. So hopefully at some point people will read that too.
1: Well, I'm happy you are doing the things that are not supposed to be done. Because I found your project really, really interesting. And you have our contact. So let us know when the book is published. And if you want to talk about it, we'll be more than happy to have you here again. But in the meantime, thank you very much for sharing your time with us in English and in Spanish. Thank you very much, Carlos.
0: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Pamela, for inviting me.
1: And I also want to thank everybody for listening to this episode about a sense of brutality, philosophy after narco culture for New Books Network in Philosophy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Pamela Fuentes. Until next time, hasta la próxima.